Okay, this is I'm here with uh, John, and we we're not actually in the same place, but we're uh, using the, uh, our new Zoom classroom and uh, to just record a conversation. And today we're going to address uh, my book, The Psychotheology of Sin and Salvation. Uh, this is a work that I put out uh, as a result of my uh, dissertation, my work at Nottingham University. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say it took me about 10 years to get <laughs> to get through that. And then the, the book, though, is put out by Bloomsbury. Um, and I, I might describe a little bit, John, before, before we get into it, just the kind of the, the unusual situation that came together at Nottingham University. Several things occurred that I, I don't know if, I guess I would call it providential. Uh, and that is that I began studying at a seminary in, uh, England while I was, uh, working in Japan, and uh, during the period that I began to study psychoanalysis, I had, I had gotten into this uh, partly as a result of my work in Japan as a missionary and academic, and looking at the work of uh, Takao Doi, who is a writer in a genre called Nihonjin Ron. But what I discovered about uh, Doi is that he's actually a Freudian psychoanalyst who in an odd way is reversing uh, Freud's death drive and uh, his understanding even of the goals of psychoanalysis. And so usually you know, you're, you're in a psychoanalytic or a Freudian understanding. Uh, you're trying to encourage the ego or build up the ego. And, of course, in the death drive, the picture is that the superego is, in fact, uh, in, in some way oppressing or uh, violent against your own ego. And in a, in a Japanese context, and especially the fact that psychoanalysis developed in the pre-war period leading up to World War II, and that you, act, you have a prince of the royal household who is himself a psychoanalyst, they could not hardly say that the goal was the, you know, in a, in a, a, a psychoanalytic development was the Oedipus complex in which you would kill your father and marry your mother because, of course, the symbolic father in Japan is the emperor. And so uh, as a result of a Japanese uh, theorist going to Freud and reversing this to, to bring this story to a close, uh, it instead of Japanese psychoanalysis focuses on the mother, and there is a kind of privileging then of both the superego and the death drive, and I will explain these terms a little bit. And that then uh, got me interested in the work of uh, Jacques Lacan 
and ultimately of Slavoj Žižek. But at the same time, I'm, I was um, on, uh, you know, beginning this research. I hadn't really begun with the idea of doing Zizek. Uh, what was happening at the University of Nottingham is that the radical Orthodox guys were moving, you know, that Milbank had come from, uh, he began at Cambridge, and I think he went to the University of Virginia, and then he began to gather his students, uh, especially Connor Cunningham at uh, Nottingham. And so as the radical Orthodox folks came together, that provided a, a neat <laughs> a platform for my own work because there really aren't too many people in the world other than the guys doing radical orthodoxy uh, that have engaged psychoanalysis, have engaged Freudian, Lacanian theory, or uh, have, in fact, you know, Zizek uh, has uh, written a book with Milbank. They've gone through several conversations, and uh, they've shared students. And so it was the ideal place to do what I had set out to do, but uh, of course I had not. In the meantime, my I acquired a new advisor coming out of Cambridge who had studied with Milbank, and then uh, Connor Cunningham came on board as my the second advisor, second reader, and so it. That's the situation in which uh, my my work then on. Psycho, psychoanalysis and theology being fused came together and uh, it was a, a neat uh, situation. But of course, in this country, there is still a kind of thin veneer. There's a few people engaging Zizek, uh, but unfortunately, they either totally capitulate and agree with his kind of atheistic understanding, or in another way, they fail to completely apprehend why you could not just take Zizek and fuse him together with Christianity. So in that sense, I think I've done something uh, that, as far as I'm aware, no one else has done, and that is that I've utilized Zizek, but in a, a very special role. And John... Uh, is uh, very well acquainted. John helped me put the uh, index together, helped me, uh, you know, work on the book. And so he's been through it several times, I think, and understands it. But anyway, that's the kind of the introduction to the discussion. Yeah, the uh, question that I think is a good starting place is one that you said you actually got asked while defending your dissertation. I believe you were asked, what, why does theology need psychoanalysis? But that's a fundamental misunderstanding of your book. And so what is the relationship between psychoanalysis and theology, and why would you bring a psychoanalytic reading to Romans 6, 7, and 8? Yeah, the, the, my understanding is that because of kind of the flattening out of theology, uh, that what has been lost in, you know, if you go back to your, your reading right now, Irenaeus and the early church fathers, 
they in fact, I think, have what would be the equivalent of a deep uh, psychological appreciation. Uh, that gets lost as the whole focus, uh, you know, with the Constantinian shift and Anselm, you get a kind of flat reading of the, the work of Christ, that it's not directed to the human condition so much as the mind of God. And so what I think gets lost in theology is, in fact, this component that deals with the structure and dynamic of human personality. Um, the, the, uh, in a sense, you can see Freudian psychoanalysis as a kind of stepping into a vacuum that had been created in theology. I think that theology uh, you know, the, should properly claim uh, something on the order of the healing uh, that psychoanalysis would at least attempt, and whether it succeeds or not, I'm not sure. I don't think it very often does, because unfortunately the two realms have been split. So to my mind, it's not that uh, theology needs psychoanalysis in the sense that psychoanalysis is this field that floats free of theology. But what I would say is that psychoanalysis is inherently a theological project uh, that has been lost to theology. And I'm trying then, uh, not just me and this, they're, they're, this is a, something that's been recognized by, by several other people. Uh, but uh, as Marcus Pound has said about my work, it is the the uh, perhaps the uh, the most intense effort uh, to bring these two realms uh, back into agreement, so that uh, that the, the healing ministry of Jesus in a psychoanalytic, psychological, holistic sense uh, we can bring back together. Okay, so that does seem to fit very well with the project of radical orthodoxy and saying that when psychoanalysis or psychology has tried to float free, what really is in place is a bad theology. Yes, yeah, it, it, it turns out that, I mean, this is Milbank's big work in connection with sociology, and so, yeah, it is a project that fits into radical orthodoxy in that to imagine First of all, to imagine that psychoanalytically that you can address the deep structures of what it means to be human and bring healing to uh, you know, a, a person apart from the work of Christ would seem to just be unchristian, that, that in fact that's what we're claiming, or we should claim, is that the very focus of who Christ is, is to bring this holistic healing uh, to, you know, our, our interior being, that the, the transformation of the mind, as Paul says. And so a psychoanal psychoanalysis or psychology that floats free of theology uh, has blundered into kind of strange territory in which I would say the thing that is very often their 
trying to save, you know, whether it's they caught, you know, usually the ego and you would characterize in uh, the United States the psycho psychology that's done and ego psychology in that the very dynamic or the very structures that they've uh, uh, inherited, now whether they overtly understand or, or accept that it's a Freudian idea, I think it is largely a Freudian inheritance, whether they, uh, obviously many have departed from mm -hmm. portions of Freud, but I think in this, uh, that what they miss, in fact, that Freud himself very quickly in the second half of his work moves beyond. And that is that Freud was himself working to uh, save or to cure or to, you know, and uh, how he describes this ultimately is that he's just going to say, well, in the end, uh, I guess that what we're trying to do is make the person socially functional that they can, uh, you know, so he lowered his expectations. But in the second half, then, he himself begins to question even the very goal of what we, we would call an ego psychology with the death drive. And so um, the, the misdirection here is, I think, largely, has largely gone unnoticed, whatever the spectrum of, uh, you know, counseling or psychology what they seem to miss is that in scripture there is the possibility that one can actually uh, be constituted in, in a false way, that there is a kind of false dynamic. <clears throat> and unfortunately, it, that uh, psychoanalysis is geared to saving that false dynamic or to manipulating it in some way. Uh, and so a psychoanalysis that floats free of theology, uh, I think, fails to get at the radical nature of the shift that is implied in the New Testament. It's just almost too much. It's almost unbelievable. And so you get a, a somebody like a Jacques Lacan, who himself was fairly theologically sophisticated, and then uh, I think that, that Slavoj Žižek, with his engagement with theology, these guys have a, uh, they're, first of all, they're radical in their own thought, in their willingness to question, you know, just the deep structures of not only human personality, but of society. And so what they have begun to get at, I think, is the radical, deep, structures that are being addressed in the New Testament, and it's precisely those things and the way that those things are constituted that a flat psychoanalytic reading fails to get at. Now, you could approach this the other way and talk about the flatness of a theology uh, that is, in fact, uh, does not take up uh, the deep structures or realities of human personality as it's there in the New Testament. But what we tend to do uh, is to fail, you know, in our, in our kind of the evangelical or I don't, I, you know, I don't think this is peculiar to any branch, Protestant or Catholic, uh, that 
with the Constantinian shift, I think there is just a failure uh, in, uh, you know, in any kind of developed sense to uh, get at then the radical transformation that I think we can begin to describe <coughs> in, in a, a, a psycho, we'll put the two fields together in a psychotheological understanding. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying what may be missing is a clear description of conversion that with a Constantinian shift, this movement uh, you know, from a fleshly orientation to a orientation that is according to the Spirit may not be as highlighted because everybody has been included into the church. But um, uh, before we go on, it has occurred to me that somebody just listening to this conversation that isn't aware of Freud the difference in Freud between the Oedipus complex and then the death drive, or has not heard of Lacan and Zizek might be a little bit lost on what we're saying. So could you run down what is the connection first in Freud between his earlier work on the Oedipus complex, uh, the drive Eros, and then his later work where he turns to, or maybe just adds to, I've heard you know, different ways of looking at Thanatos, the death drive, and then how do Lacan and Zizek pick up and interpret Freud? Yeah, that, and, you know, in a lot of this, um, I don't know that uh, I'm, you know, a lot of Freudian stuff gets pretty strange. Um, but, and, and especially, but he's a guy who is looking at people who, are sick, you know, basically that's what he's trying to do is diagnose what's wrong with these, you know, people that are appearing in his, in his clinic. And so he begins with the, the arrows or what we would call, you know, the sex drive, the, you know, this basic and, and works with the idea that this in some way is the prime explanation that uh, arrows is the, a kind of life force and this is, this is, Freud is, is doing, you know, he's sort of trying to do everything. Uh, he's, he's a doctor, but he's trying to lay out some, you know, cosmic biological explanation for what a human being is. So he himself um, is, is kind of lost in terms of, you know, where to begin. So, but... I, would, I probably should add a footnote here. Of course, the whole structure of the Freudian framework is very Hebraic. The idea of a man being pitted against himself, the idea of language uh, being key, you know, symbol, symbolism. And many people have noticed that the realm in which Freud is working is very much a, a, a Hebraic picture of the universe. And especially then in the focus that you get in the Oedipus complex, that he he concludes that in his early work, then the primary problem, you know, is between the the father and the child. You know, the story of Oedipus Rex, who would you know he kills his father and marries his mother. This uh, the early Freud then uh, he is accused of just talking about that everything is sex. And Freud himself becomes unhappy with a kind of mono-instinctual 
understanding because it doesn't explain the inherent conflict within the psyche. You know, why are people neurotic? Why do they hurt themselves? And so in uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he uh, proposes an, another theory. He, you know, he uh, is watching his grandchild play a little game with a spool in which he hides it and it appears and he begins to speak, you know, he begins to talk. And this whole game uh, is a kind of, he can see it's a kind of satisfaction that uh, comforts the child in the absence. Freud's daughter is left and usually the child cries, but when he plays this game, then he's happy to just make the school spool appear and disappear <coughs> in a game in which he has, you know, complete control. Freud in a, in a little footnote that Lacan is going to pick out makes note that in the same period, the child uh, saw itself for the first time in a mirror and began to say, play the same game in the mirror that he had played with the spool, you know, that he would look and say, there I am and da. And, you know, uh, then hide and, you know, say, he's, I'm gone for in German. And so with this, you know, game that he saw, Freud then uh, did two things. He recognized that there were a couple of forces at work in the child. Um, the symbolic force of language and the way that, uh, entry into language is actually changing up then uh, the child's relationship uh, to his mother and his you know he his individuate his you know appearance as an individual his recognition of himself the all these things came together came together and so this is where you get the tripartite. Uh, picture of the superego is the structures of society. It's the authority. It's the father figure, you know, the, the, uh, what Freud is going to come to call the symbolic, which in the largest frame is just language. And then the, if you think of the child looking in the mirror, the ego is, you know, Freud calls it, uh, you know, the, the word there is just a kind of object uh, that there is the visual, it's a kind of visualized object. And so the two things have to come together. You have to be able to name the object to see it in the mirror. And, of course, to name it as an object, it's in some way separate from you. So entry into language creates this inherent alienation within us in which we are both subject and object. The way that Lacan will put it, you know, that the, the speaker, the subject of the sentence, and the one, you know, the object of the sentence or the one that, uh, you know, uh, speaks and the one spoken or the word spoken are two different things, and that's there in Freud. Lacan will, will never claim originality, you know. Uh, he, he says, well, I'm just doing Freud. 
But of course, the, the key difference is that where Freud had always been thinking in terms of biology, Lacan is going to transpose all of this into the realm of language and linguistics. And so with the positing then of the symbolic or the law or the superego, and then the ego as a kind of object, there is an inherent disparity. There is an inherent antagonism that, you know, in some way uh, points to this third realm from which both the ego and the superego have arisen, and that is just the it, you know, the id, the uh, what Lacan will call the real, that, that the forces uh, that all of this structure are, you know, saturated in, are in fact uh, interwoven so that you have a self, but the self is constituted between uh, levels of consciousness between the, you know, you're not going to be fully aware of the superego, and the id or the real is going to completely escape consciousness, but in fact is the force and it's the split then the the between uh, you know the antagonism that constitutes what we would call human you know the human subject and of course Freud had questioned the idea of the reality of the ego Lacan doesn't just question it he says no it's a fiction. It's, it is just the, the structure is itself a kind of fictional uh, structure. But nonetheless, that fiction is what constitutes human personality. Yeah, he, well, he names it the imaginary. Yeah, the, yeah the, the ego is the imaginary. It's an imaginary relationship to the self. It's uh, not real. So the tripartite structure itself is the human subject, but only as the human subject enters into the realm of language. Yeah, the, there is no subject apart from language. Uh, at least not the subject as we have it. You know what? That uh, there is a kind of there is a kind of uh, uh, vague part here in Lacan, and that is the degree to to which there's an agent that underlies the structure. He, sees his, he still seems to posit some sort of human agency mm -hmm. that lies outside of the tripartite structure, but that's never really located. So when you, when you talk about the subject, it is this uh, inherent alienation and, you know, the, 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 if you would break down the walls of alienation, it's not that, you know, suddenly we would come to full self-realization. Rather, the subject would disappear. There is no subject. Mm -hmm. <coughs> All right, so that makes a lot of sense why Lacan, how Lacan picks up Freud, and, of course, the context that he's working in there in France at the same time as the other uh, postmoderns in literary studies. But why would Zizek, a Marxist materialist follower of at least his own reading of Hegel, what would he see in Lacan's reading of Freud? 
and why does he pick it up and use it? Yeah, the 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 situation, you know, in uh, uh, in the former Yugoslavia, I think must just be inherently interesting. That uh, the first of all, the the material, the Marxist materialism, I think, is kind of the the starting point, and so there is this. You know, a kind of acceptance that you're going to explain what a person is in a kind of materialistic framework, and Freud is is handy to do that. Uh, Zizek's engagement with Hegel then is, a, you know, he would read Hegel with those who would say Hegel is not really a Lutheran, positing some, you know, actually existing Geist or world spirit but rather that Hegel is himself actually a kind of atheistic materialist. So his reading of German idealism does not get, you know, and, and that in this sense, the atheist part is a good thing because where Hegel and, you know, ultimately Heidegger, but uh, where they really get bizarre is the part where we might think, oh, they've saved a little bit of their orthodox Lutheranism and that they still have a transcendent being. Now, in a, in a sense, that's the worst part of German idealism. Uh, that, you know, Hegel sees Napoleon, Napoleon uh, rides in on his horse, and Hegel says, well, there's the world spirit on a horse. spirit. spirit. Um, so what we get get, get rid of in the materialistic and atheistic part is is precisely the first part of part of idealism. Um, um, so that the the uh, Lacan is coming at it. Brother Zizek is is coming to a reading of Lacan, and what Zizek will say about Lacan is that he never really understood Lacan, except having gone to France and hearing the explanation of uh, Lacan's son-in-law, who is kind of the keeper of the unpublished portions of the seminars, and uh, so. With that, and and Zizek then has a, you know, he has both a philosophy and a the degree in the training and degree in psychoanalysis. He brings these two realms together. But of course, in in this reading of Hegel, if you think about Hegel's, you know, uh, master-slave dialectic, that's very similar to what you're getting in a Freudian superego you know, ego kind of dialectic. The master-slave dialectic is a kind of deep psychological reading of the human condition. And in German, in both Hegel and Schelling, then, there is an explanation for the rise of subjectivity out of nothing. That's really, you know, what Schelling is doing, and Zizek will do a lot with Schelling, but that is kind of a... uh, metaphysical picture of what happens to every subject, the rise of subjectivity is not on the basis, you know, as in a Christian understanding, uh, that 
were created in the image of God, but in, a, in an atheistic Marxist understanding, that the subject arises from out of nothing, and how does the subject, how are we constituted as self-conscious subjects? So it's, a, it's an interesting project to attempt. Um, and psychoanalysis then in this is, is of course, in, in great need of something other than that there is a great need for theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Zizek reads Paul, and this yeah. is the part of Zizek that you use, right? And that, and Lacan had done this a little bit. You know, Lacan had taken the Romans chapter seven, and you know, the idea of the tripartite picture of the subject is there in Paul, and Lacan had already noticed this, and so he had done actually a reading he rewrites Romans 7 uh, and changes Paul's vocabulary just replaces the law and you know the sin and uh, the he doesn't need to replace the ego but we could call it the symbolic or, or rather the imaginary and so you can do a reading of Romans 7 that both Lacan recognized and Zizek then will develop, he, he never does this in a systematic way. And so what I've done in my book is just bring together and show how there is this coherence to, you know, you, you say the law in uh, Romans 7, well, that translates directly into the symbolic. And so we're no longer, you know, once you do that, I think it's true to Romans, because what Paul meant by the law was never simply, uh, you know, simply the, the Mosaic law or the prohibition in the garden. Or No, the law was in some way constitutive of what a person is, and not necessarily, in other words, we're talking about the law of sin and death, this structure of what a person is outside of Christ. And so, that, I think, in a theological framework, is precisely what had been missing, that people were talking about law as if it's an objective force, you know, uh, but what you get uh, in this understanding is, no, that law, <coughs> that our relationship to the law, our perversion of the law, are, you know, in a Freudian sense, you cathect the law, you take it up into yourself. Well, that's precisely what Paul's describing, that your entry into the law is already a perversion of it. You know, I did not know what it was to covet until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And so the, the, the very statement is not a quotation of Scripture, but in fact is already a twisting of scripture that Paul seems to be purposely laying out. He said, sin deceived me in regard to the law, that it used the occasion of the encounter with the law. Well, that's precisely what, you know, that's the thing that Zizek and Lacan are finding very interesting here. Law connected with the deception, the inherent deception you know, the primordial lie is the way that Zizek will talk about it. Well, that's the way Paul talks about the deception. It is a lie that he's 
seems to be following Genesis 3 and describing how man has been uh, subjected to this deception and how this fractures uh, his his relationship. So the law is the you know the symbolic. It is in Freud the superego. It is this punishing presence. Now the huge <coughs> and tragic mistake that you get in theology is to imagine that this. Romans 7-7 picture of God is the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so Zizek says, no, this is perverse, This and he's right. And that Paul is describing this perversity. You know. uh, the other thing is the I. You know, what is the status of this I, the ego, for Paul? Well, he, he will say, I have been crucified with Christ. The I no longer lives, but it's Christ. In other words, you can kill off this thing. <laughs> you can undo this dynamic. It doesn't harm you. It saves you. Mm. That's what salvation is, is to destroy this Romans 7-7 picture of the self and replace it with life in Christ, you know, Romans 8, Romans 6, or other places in the New Testament. So that, this is the, the, the depth of an understanding. Now, of course, Zizek and Lacan are not doing Romans 8 or Romans 6. They're, they'll, you know, Zizek touches a little bit on Romans 6, but mainly Zizek is interested in uh, Romans chapter 7 because it's there that he lays out then his two forms, you know, for Lacan and Zizek, there's the, the two key forms mm -hmm. of human subjectivity. One would be a pervert. The pervert is someone who does not question the law, who just imagines that the law <coughs> in some way is the thing, that there is life in the law. He's saying that that perverse subjectivity, you know, shall we sin that grace may abound, is precisely the understanding that gets taken up in an evangelical Christianity mm -hmm. or in a Protestant Christianity. And Zizek will do a reading of various uh, atonement theories to demonstrate this, and I think he's right, especially the diet. You know, Calvinist and penal substitution, penal substitution and divine satisfaction. Um, so the uh, idea that uh, of the pervert is that they are unquestioning. Mm -hmm. But what you are encountering in Romans seven is not simply perversity, but hysteria. And so hysteria is kind of the privileged subject that this is as good as it gets or Zizek, the hysteric questions the structure. And in questioning it, the presumption is you can manipulate it. But for Zizek, that's as far, you know, for him, that's a true reading of Christianity is a kind of hysteric reading. There is no theological solution <laughs> for Zizek. Where would you want one? He, you could not ever propose what, what I do mm -hmm. and what I think Paul does 
in uh, Romans 8, and that is the dissolution of the real, the undoing of the whole structure, mm -hmm. the exposure of the lie. Because for Zizek, that's just, a, mm -hmm. in a sense, Zizek would, you know, agree with Paul that I no longer live. But for Zizek, he could not go on with that statement. Christ lives within me because for him there is no transcendent God. He, he is a true atheist. Yeah, yeah I think uh, just to highlight a few of the things that you said, because that was a lot, um, in Romans 7 you're locating both a perverse understanding of the human subject and a hysteric understanding of the human subject with this tripartite, um, you know, some. I guess subjectivity, I guess we could just say that. So if we were going to use uh, Lacan's registers, in the beginning of Romans 7, you have the woman who is an adulteress or she is not an adulteress, but it's completely in the eyes of the law of whether she is an adulteress or not. And of course that's actually characteristic of the masculine perversity. But as the, her, the female woman in there, the adulteress, she is over and against, or the law is over and against her. She is the imaginary, the law, of course, is the symbolic, and the whole occasion or the instance being recorded there would be the real. And so there is the human subject completely defined by the law. But over in Romans 7, 7 and following, you actually have Paul talking about the human subject, the I, the ego, still being defined by the law, but this time being defined by questioning and responding to the law. And for Zizek or for Lacan, that hysteric position is as good as it gets. Yeah, now remember, though, in Romans 7, 1 to 6, there is the woman who is representative of the masculine position, but Paul goes on to say, but you have died with Christ. So a foreshadowing of Romans 8. Yes, there is the, the, the picture of Romans 8 that you then uh, are not defined by the law. You're not in the position of the woman, but you are in the place of the law. It's, it's interesting that A.T. Robinson, in his uh, commentary on Romans, describes this in terms very, of course, predating Zizek, but describing this in terms that Zizek is going to notice, and that is that there is a kind of, you know, hollow place. The, the word here, katargatai, uh, suspension of the law. It is this, what this word means is key, because, uh, you know, we have it in bad translation, obliteration, or, you know, just, you know but that's not what's happening. Mm-hmm. But the entry into the place from which the law emanates, which for Zizek, of course, is the real, but for a Christian, mm -hmm. uh, it's Christ. That mm -hmm. in some way we've entered into the body of Christ, that Christ embodies the law. He's bigger than the law. He's not bound in, you know, by the law in, the, in as much as he is its author. And so, by being in Christ, you suspend the law. Now, this is a kind of dangerous concept, because this is precisely the concept that 
Hegel, and you know, Zizek notices this, that Hegel picks up. Yeah, the Lutheran word Aufhebung. Yes, yes. That Luther, uh, you know, translates Kartargetai uh, Aufhebung, and then uh, Hegel takes this, what people presume is, oh, here's a good Lutheran understanding, but Hegel's whole dialectic structure, I think this is the key term in understanding Hegelian philosophy. Mm-hmm. What he's saying is that the suspension of the law is not a peculiar thing, or at least this is Zizek's reading of Hegel, and I think it's probably true, that it's not a peculiar thing that happens in the body of Christ, but it's just what can happen in any dialectic yeah. uh, in which you reach a kind of uh, you know, res- resolution or real... There's nothing particular or specific to Christianity, then. Right. It's yeah. just, uh, you know, maybe Christ in some way blazed the trail here, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, death and uh, holding yourself out in death and nothingness, this is actually, you know, I'm not sure if we ever depart from Hegel and yeah. Heidegger and others. You know, this is Tillich. Yeah. All these guys are picking up German idealism. But we can depart, and Paul, because he doesn't actually, the law isn't the focus. The law, I think um, the translation of the Greek that BDAG gives, the big lexicon, is something like a phrase, to be made idle, set and made idle to us. So it's not that anything really happens to the law, but something happens to us. And as Paul wraps up Romans chapter 7, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus. And so something has happened to the human subject. So in Romans 7, Paul describes the human subject in terms of law, the ego, the I, and then, of course, desire, the place of this happening, which could be the id or the uh, real. What is the tripartite structure that you see in Romans 8 constitutive of a saved life or a life set free from the body of sin and death? And of course, this is the this is where this all gets very interesting, because what you're describing in uh, Freud and Lacan and Zizek are are ultimately grounded on pure emptiness. Well, inasmuch as Christians, we believe that we've denied God and God's presence in our life. That's probably what that would look like. So when you move into Romans eight, what you realize Paul is doing. He's describing the work of the Trinity as we then become participants in the Trinity. And so we can begin to identify this tripartite structure with the various persons of the Trinity. That obviously, you know, where the symbolic then is a kind of perverse uh, misconstrual of both the law and of who God is. In Romans 8, we have Abba, Father. We have a a relationship to God in which uh, it's no longer an objectified law that stands over and against us, but it's a direct relationship that we have through Christ. Um. It's no longer that the, uh, you know, in Romans 7 or in a Freudian uh, understanding, the controlling factor is the id. 
the real. And, you know, this is why Zizek, you know, the, the real is perhaps the mysterious category because it's, in some way, the it's an unapproachable category. Mm-hmm. In an atheist universe, this nothingness, this absolute nothingness, uh, and the force of death that arises from there is then the ultimate thing that controls the subject. Life and the Holy Spirit then are the controlling factor in the relationship to the Trinity. So that where death and the orientation to death taken up into the human subject describes life and the law, life and the spirit then is uh, one in which the world, you know, the, the things are made effective, that the law is enacted. We're able to walk as Jesus walked. We're able, you know, whereas the I and the superego cannot be coordinated. I do what I do not want to do that you can't. In chapter 8, suddenly there is a coordination of the law of the mind and the law of the body. These things are not pitted against one another, but rather we are able to carry out, you know, mind and body are in harmony. It's not that the body is an objectified, you know, if you had to identify the real and where it's located in Zizek or uh, the law of sin in Paul, it's in this thing called the body. But the body is this, you know, the flesh stands over and against. Well, that's no longer the case. Like pure illicit desire, covetousness. Yes, yes, that it is the, you know, this is Lacan don't give way on your desire. Well, yeah, because that's all you got. Yeah. That is the life force. But what we have in Christ is not desire as life, but it's the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, of course, all of this, this coordination between, you know, with the Spirit and the uh, Father, is in as much as we are part of the body of Christ. So the subject position from which we apprehend the Father and we participate in the, you know, in the Son, in the Spirit, <coughs> is in and through the corporate identity that we take up. So what displaces the ego or the I, as Paul says, it's Christ, mm-hmm. Christ that lives within me. So you have a Trinitarian relationship that explains the deep structures of the human psyche and we even then describe the unconscious in a new way, that it's not that we're controlled by death and nothingness or, you know, desire, as it, uh, but rather, you know, Paul in Romans 8 says that with, you know, the spirit groans, with, well, you know, our, the, the world is groaning and there's the picture of uh, the groaning of the believer but that this, what is to us an unconscious reality is taken account of by the Spirit who, you know, apprehends, understands, uh, you know, the mind of the, the believer and the mind of God. Yeah, it seems like you're um, hitting upon something so huge and foundational, both in Scripture but just in what we believe Christianity is, 
that there was once a relationship with God, and this was predicated upon it being a communal relationship. So the image of God, the Imago Dei, is born in community. You have male and female. And this breaks down when the human subject begins to constitute itself as an individual and wants to find life in and of itself rather than life in and through God. And then the rest of Scripture or salvation, the work of God, seems to be a therapy that is bringing the human subject back into a proper relationship with itself, its own subjectivity, with humanity, and also with God. Yeah, now, you know, uh, the, unfortunately, you know, I think uh, that with uh, Augustine and with Anselm and then the development of individualism in the West, you could misread this, mm-hmm. and I think this is the misreading that you get in psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. that we imagine to get to the deep structures of the subject that we have to, in some way, that the individual is constituted uh, in a kind of interior dynamic. But what I've just described in a Trinitarian dynamic, we're not really simply dealing with an interior Reality, but we're describing uh, the way in which both the you know and, and the the terms fail here because there is no interior and exterior reality cut off from one another. There is no sense in which we are constituted individually apart from the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Now that's in chapter seven. You do have the the kind of isolated individual. And unfortunately, in counseling, in psychoanalysis, that's precisely the way and the one that you're wanting to rescue, that mm-hmm. that sick, interior, isolated individual. You want to so manipulate things so that they're in some way, you know, you can live with yourself. Well, Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? I think the rescue is just to get rid of that isolated notion of the self and to realize, no, we're incorporated, uh, made healthy. So what I'm de- as I'm describing this Trinitarian relationship, don't make the, you know, this is a reading of De Trinitate, of uh, Augustine's work on the Trinity, that uh, he tends to make that, uh, a completely interior dynamic. I don't think he's completely guilty of that, but it's there. By the time you get to Anselm, I think it is completely an isolated interior dynamic. But he's going to then describe atonement theory simply as something that is worked out in the will of you know the individual. So the isolated individual as a you know, has to be getting, gotten rid of in some way. That's a kind of fiction. That's a kind of hell uh, that that uh, needs to be crucified. Yes. So uh, the I or the ego is actually replaced with Christ, who is within me. But that also means the individual incorporated into the body of Christ, the community of the faithful. Yeah, that that when you say that it's no longer I, uh, well, no, it's a plurality of persons. It's a it's a we. It's a uh, that we only understand who we are in you know, and that's the picture. The the fruits of the spirit were never something mm-hmm. that we bore individually. That they are only fruits as we 
in, inhabit a body and uh, social construct. You know, all those things are talking about interactions, love, joy, peace, long suffering. Those are things you do with people, mm -hmm. other people. You don't do it in your head by yourself. Yeah, okay. And so now maybe we could talk about the practical. We seem to be shifting that way anyway to the practical implications of your work. Maybe even for counseling. And I uh, thought I might attempt a graduate degree in counseling, but have been brought back into doing a graduate degree in theology. It seems to fit me personally, not to say that counseling isn't valuable. And so I, I admit I have very limited experience and limited knowledge of counseling, but can speak to a little bit about what it is as a field, as a profession. And it seems that uh, just the basics of counseling could accept your premises and move forward with this, what a counselor does. You're meeting with somebody, you're trying to work through uh, maybe their false or misinterpretation of who they are in the world, and you want to uh, provide this therapy. But I'm not for sure that you can do that apart from Christianity. And so I know we're saying something probably very provocative. Uh, same thing John Milbank is saying. It is very provocative that theology touches everything. And to imagine that we can do anything apart from that theology is just to fail to be human, to fail we're doing a poor theology. So would it be fair to say that if we're really going to engage sick people, with a version of counseling, that it has to be a theological version of counseling. And, you know, John, you may be in a better place to speak to this. Uh, I mean, my obvious answer is yes, that that must be the way to go forward here. Uh, and, and an odd sort of thing about me is that I didn't get into any of this uh, for uh, counseling purposes or even because I had some inherent interest in psychology. I got into it, first of all, as a kind of missiologist, you know, for uh, doing mission work in Japan, and uh, a theologian, that it, it engaged me at a theological level. And so I've always felt that, the, that what is, you know, being, what, the, the work that is, has been done, and this was what I projected in even my, my uh, dissertation, is that this then would uh, impact a counseling understanding, but unfortunately, I'm not the one to, to carry this out. I, I don't really have expertise in uh, various counseling theories or you know the mechanics of counseling. But what I would say is that that in as much as people come to me who, you know, unless it's just a kind of physiological problem, which you you know you do encounter that. People that uh, are neurotic, neurosis is, is you know, very, you know, it, it's pervasive. And, and it's very common. We're, we're not talking about some uh, terrible illness necessarily. Yeah, it's uh, the... the it is a terrible illness, but it's... And this is what Freud identified, you know, the compulsion to repeat. Uh, it seemed it was there in everybody. And I said, yeah, it's there in everybody. What we tend to do is be ashamed of it that there is this compulsion to repeat, we all have it, and we don't know what to do with it. And so it manifests itself in a variety of ways. You know, this is the way that Freud is describing the, the death drive, that it is the compulsion to repeat. 
but is to repeat the same thing over and over, usually some traumatic thing or some something that's transgressive or vulgar or you know or not it it it, it literally in the content and so i'm afraid that apart from a theological content that could be brought is repetition per se a bad thing not if it's the word of god that we take up within ourselves and uh, repeating the practices of Jesus. That that is it. That that we are meant for the Word of God. We were meant to integrate this Word into us. But until we're given that substantive content, that our lives are going to be bent upon compulsively repeating, you know, in an addictive sort of fashion. Is that again? You know, what what is your addiction? You know, mm-hmm. you choose. Uh, that that's a description of the death drive, um, and and I think that you can begin to recognize this. You know, things that people do to themselves in addiction and cutting themselves, and uh, you know the various kinds of orientations you'll encounter. I think that theologically, even with my kind of naivete about counseling. I've been able to to talk to people at least at a theological level, but maybe you can speak to how that might apply in mm-hmm. a counseling setting. Yeah, and so I guess first I just want to make sure that anybody who is familiar with counseling knows what we're not saying, because what we wouldn't be saying is the type of biblical counseling that already exists. Oh, here's a Bible verse to fix all your problems. Uh, pray about it and go on with your life. Uh, it is deeper than that, but it's not to say that our problems or our neuroses aren't theologically addressed. So the strength of what I think counseling does provide is that counseling, more so than psychology, is not based off of any one theory. Most counselors are generalists, and they probably uh, use very little of any psychological theory in a given interview session because there's just a set of skills and they seem to just be basic to human experience that help you talk through issues with somebody so that maybe you can begin to articulate what is real, what is false, what is true, uh, what is not happening. And this seems to help. So I wouldn't deny that counseling helps, but perhaps it helps just in as much as in our createdness in the way we have conversations, there is some, proportionate piece of theology already involved there, just in the talking out through our issues. But uh, apart from Christian conversion, there is no healing of the fundamental human problem or fundamental human issue, and that is desire, sin, the body of death that Paul is describing. So I think this is maybe the project of radical orthodoxy, taking up your work and just being unashamed to say, no, counseling needs to be theological. We don't simply integrate theology into counseling, but we have to understand that the foundations of counseling is a theological foundation, and we move forward in that manner. Uh, I'm not for sure how much that changes what happens in a counseling session, but it definitely would change the worldview and the direction that the counselor 
is taking the individual through that process of talking through an issue and identifying what is true and what is not, and uh, you know, entering into life uh, or entering into uh, reality with a different perspective. And I see that just being a lot of what counseling does. It's, they're not really trying to yeah anything up. But my my immediate instinct here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, what you in, encounter. You know, this was Freud when somebody asked him, well, why don't, why don't you do a psychoanalytic an analysis of Dostoevsky? Mm. And he said, why would I do that? Because that's boring. Dostoevsky's not interesting because he was addicted to gambling or, you know, his, mm. his, his alcoholism. He said, that's just one more neurotic. So what's interesting about the person is, you know, Dostoevsky in this case is, his thought, his, you know, what is his novels, you know. And I, I think that's the, the shift that needs to be brought uh, to a lot of counseling is that what tends to happen is this intense focus on the disease mm. and the manipulation of the categories, you know. Tell me, you know, tell me about, you know, your yes. childhood, your mother abused you, you say, you know. Well, we can all focus on those things, not to say that all counseling mm -hmm. does that, but, but even, you know, even a healthy counseling, I think that what we're saying in, from a theological perspective, what needs to be brought into the conversation is a depth of seriousness of, of you know, a, a kind of substance that is missing in people's lives. What's, you know, neurotic about, uh, you know, drinking large amounts of alcohol or gambling, uh, if you would replace those repetitive actions with the substantive content, uh, theological content, that I think then, you know, what compulsion to repeat in terms of addictive behavior is isolating death healing and destructive mm -hmm. you've just written on friendship and i think that's that's the thing what connects us what heals us is is agape love is connectedness to other people well, what is the basis of our connection you know well let me tell you about how screwed up i am in my head well that's interesting but uh, that's not going to be a, a point that we can connect on and love one another. The place that we come together, the place that we can connect to other people, is, I believe, in a conversation, uh, uh, you know, a theological conversation, a conversation about God. This hooks us up. This brings us into association. Uh, this is the substantive you know, uh, meat that not just for the our minds to consume, but that will give energy and life and substance to human relationships. That a relationship lacking in that kind of substance is not going to endure. You know, how can you love your brother uh, talking about, whatever, you know, your neuroses, or even just trivia, <laughs> football, or, you know, I can talk about football for about one minute. Yeah. Uh, 
but I could talk about God and theology. That's the, the basis upon which to form a friendship. And so maybe we're saying the same thing uh, that we were saying in the beginning, that any form of counseling or psychology apart from theology doesn't have any ground. So the groundedness that uh, theology would bring to counseling or just associating counseling with theology is that as humans, there really is uh, there's a potential that has been fulfilled and revealed in Jesus Christ of what humanity is. And theologically, we can help people move there. If you don't have that ground, uh, we might actually just be trying to fulfill those desires that would kill us. And that's my understanding is that, that uh, what we've done, unfortunately, is misread uh, Romans. We've misread Romans 7. And we've imagined that what Paul is describing is the recommendation, the prescription uh, to Christian life. What he's recommending, if you're perverting that, is to say, oh, well, we should desire and we should fulfill our desires and we should, you know. Well, no, that that is not the Christian life. That's the, the perverse, sinful life. And so that life then is given over to covetousness, to yeah. desire. Uh, and there's something better than that, uh, you know, yeah. than uh, pursuing exponential desire. I, I think of Augustine. We've, we've sort of picked on him a lot, and we do. There's so many readings of Augustine. That he, he says, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And I, there's a perverse reading of that. But there is another reading which would simply say, that God replaces our desires such that we have no need for some, anything else when we enter the life of God, participation in the Trinity. Yeah, and I like that. Been described. Yeah. I like that. And so that's the picture in Romans 8 is what happens to desire. It doesn't appear in Romans 8. It's gone. The eye is gone. The desire is gone. The law is gone. That. uh, and on on the other hand, in Romans eight, uh, there you know uh, all the things that appear there: hope, love, you know, Abba, Father, prayer. None of those things are present in chapter seven. You cannot bring those two worlds together. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's what you get in most Christianity. They're trying to bring bring together Romans seven and Romans eight. Or, to put it another way, they're trying to bring together a perverse understanding of God, whether that be an Aristotelian Greek understanding or, you know, just a a philosophical understanding and a Christian understanding. Those two realms do not mix. They do not enfold, you know, fold on to one another. And so what you get in so much evangelical Christianity is is just kind of a practicing atheism, but uh, it is a perversion. In fact, atheism, I'm afraid, would often be a, a, an improvement. And I don't I don't mean this facetiously, uh, because I think what makes many people sick is in in, in fact that uh, the uh, they have a perverse understanding of God. And this is, you know, this is going to be uh, a perversity 
that they take up as a kind of religious duty. And so their, uh, their lives are being destroyed by a perverse religious understanding. I think for many people, step one is, and, and I'll say something quickly after this, step one is stop believing in that God. Become an atheist, at least in regard to this pagan understanding. I think that's really what Paul is saying is you need to get rid of the kind of perverse, you know, punishing God of Romans 7, not to be an atheist, but to be a Christian in which we fully accept God as Father. And isn't it interesting? The God that we would get rid of is actually ourselves. Oh, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but as Christ that lives in me. That's yes, yes. That the the God that is in our head, the God that's punishing us, the symbolic, the other, the big other, is not really an actually existing thing. You know, this is why I can agree with Zizek's atheism. The God he doesn't believe in, I don't believe in either. Yeah, uh, he just doesn't happen to to uh, hold that there is another possibility. But the big other, the idea of this, you know, this punishing, hungry, uh, bloodthirsty uh, kind of God, uh, that's in your head. And that's really what you're doing to yourself. Uh, and if you put that on yourself, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be living, as Paul says, in the body of death. So I, I think that there is a great depth of joy. There is profound healing that is available to us that people or Christians are missing out on because they've been, you know, bought into, well, they bought into a lie, uh, but the particular structure of this lie is, you know, I, what do you want to call it? I, I hate to just, uh, you know, I, I, I don't mean to in some way blow off uh, an, an entire understanding, but I think as, as long as people are caught up in a kind of Constantinian, nationalistic, um, you know, uh, individual ideology. ideology. <laughs> I just would want to distinguish that from Christianity. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. Well, perhaps this is a good place to end. All right, John, it's been good talking, and let's, uh, let's uh, do this again.